0: Life in a Small French Village, Episode 3, Rocard. (music) Near the main village square was a house known as the Chateau. It wasn't a proper chateau, which is of course a defence castle. It wasn't even a manor but in almost every single French village, if you ask around, you'll pretty well find one house with that same designation. These houses are usually elegant structures built in the 19th century, and they were never inhabited by a noble, but by a prominent local person, a judge, a doctor, a notary, a retired military person of high standing. In Montaigne, the chateau is in red brick, and surrounded by a high wall hiding an elegant park with many large trees. But it had been abandoned for many years. Locals said it was a tragic place, that it had never brought anything but misery to those who had lived in it. The last residents had been a well-off couple and their one son, on whom they had put a great amount of pressure to succeed. Excessive pressure. He would go places. He would be influential in the country, marry well. But unable to stand the stress, unable to accept failure of any sort, the son killed himself. The house stayed empty for almost thirty years. Then one day there was a new owner, a very stout, dark-haired, disagreeable man with a black limousine. He was mafia, villagers said. He'd show up on the weekends with crowds of friends. You could hear them over the high wall, jubilant men, shrill women, all vulgar and loud. They drank to excess, and then, when sufficiently bored with their own company, took out rifles and shot all the songs from the trees. But Mr. Mafia didn't last very long either. Within a year, we heard, with great relief and some pleasure, that he'd been murdered in Paris. The house was abandoned again. Across the road, and at a slight angle, was another impressive building known as The Farm. In this region there were no outlying farms, probably because of war. This had been a battlefield many times, particularly during the First and Second World Wars, and the insecurity had pushed people into the relative safety of villages. The farm was a typical local construction in stone. A fortress farm, large, square, with a vast interior courtyard, and no windows to the road, and no entry other than the large, gated one in front— for the principle of such fortress farms was to prohibit entry to the many great pillaging beggar bands that roamed the country before, during, and even after the French Revolution. All around the inside of the courtyard were barns, stables, chicken hutches, pigsties, a well, a pond, and a huge pile of animal manure, which, for long centuries before toilets were created, were the open-air solution for all. The main house did, however, have windows onto the street. Thus, it dated from a later time. The farm manager was a man called Rocard, and he ran it on rather medieval lines, or so I thought. The farm workers lived in the grey stone houses all along my road, and very early, every morning, they came to the farm gate, then stood there, silent in the early light, kicking their heels until Rocard came to the gate, and opened it for them. It didn't matter if it were raining, sleeting, or the sun was unbearable, or the cold intolerable. They had to wait. They could have pushed the gate open, of course. It wasn't locked. But protocol forbids such initiative. These workers were no longer serfs, but they were obsequious, and their status didn't seem to differ from serfs. Rocard called them by their first names, tutored them using the familiar thee, thy, and thou form. They called him Rocard, his last name, and used the formal vous or you form. None of these men and one woman owned their houses, but lived in those belonging to the estate. The estate also owned all the surrounding lands, a vast acreage planted with sugar beets and maize. But if these workers were low down on the social scale, there were those who were lower still. At harvest time, when more hands were needed, itinerant workers arrived, often Belgian or Polish. These people were societies most impoverished, working where they could. They were housed in an old building within the courtyard's confines, an austere place of no comfort, perhaps the original dwelling from some distant time. And they slept on planks, covered with mattresses, sometimes filled with straw, just as their ancestors had done hundreds of years before. Time hadn't moved on for them. But Hokar was only the farm manager, the régisseur. He didn't own the farm or the land. It belonged to another family who lived in a great fine house quite a distance away. "'They were not nobles, but their ancestors "'must have been those wealthy enough "'to acquire the property of the church "'and the aristocracy after the revolution. "'Rocard, although he was simply the farm manager, "'did have plans. "'He was very ambitious. "'He was also a rather unscrupulous lady-killer. "'Okay, he wasn't bad-looking, "'but I thought he was somehow neutral, "'as if he hadn't quite grown a visible character. "'Short and broad, with dark hair, The glasses he wore almost made him look like an intellectual, but his permanent mocking sneer cancelled out that impression. The ladies did like him, though, and how he got away with his adventures without being murdered was a miracle in itself. He did live with a woman, a very pleasant, handsome blonde, Marie Claire, but her territory was the house. "'I never saw her anywhere but in her doorway "'or occasionally in the courtyard, "'although I suppose, or rather I hope, "'she did have a broader life than that. Rolcard, however, was to be found everywhere, "'in the courtyard, "'or constantly driving along the roads "'in his little white van, "'watching everything, "'surveying his workers in the fields, "'the cattle in the pasture, the sheep. "'And he drove slowly, "'taking especial pleasure in seeing the ladies, "'snagging them with longing but cynical looks, "'engaging them in flirtatious chit-chaff meant to seduce. "'And the list of his mistresses was quite long. "'The butcher's wife, a heavily made-up woman "'with a very long-dyed black hair tied in a ponytail. "'Apparently her husband was well aware of the affair, "'but didn't dare do a thing. "'Did he need Rolcard for his business?' Rocard did sell all the beef in the area. Or perhaps his wife was a valuable partner, and he couldn't run the itinerant van business and the shop without her. And there were other mistresses, too. One was his female agricultural employee, a tall, heavy, red-faced woman of great strength. Her husband, a rather weedy man, also worked in the fields. But when Rocard was desirous of a tryst, he made sure to send him to some distant area. Then, after a knowing wink to the lady, he'd go wait for her in the cemetery. The cemetery, oddly enough, was where many village trysts took place. It was almost a lover's motorway. There were other women on his list too, village wives, shop owners and other villages. Women didn't seem ever to be able to resist Rocard. He did try to tempt me, driving slowly by my house, sending me interested, seductive looks, but I was quite impervious to his charm. I did know, however, that professional charmers don't take rejection lightly. One day I fell madly in love with a cow. Guy, one of the farm workers, mentioned that there was a new arrival at the farm, a cow that needed milking, but no one had the time to do it. "'I said I'd be happy to take on the task. "'It was a crazy suggestion, for I knew nothing about cows or milking. "'But if someone showed me how to go about it, I was game.' "'It was hard. "'I'd never imagined hand-milking could be such work, "'and for days my hands ached. "'The darling cow a beauty in black and white suffered too "'because I was incompetent, and one of her udders became infected.' But eventually I got the hang of it, and she came to like me, greeting me when I arrived, pushing her nose into my pockets to find the treats I brought her each day. And she was a clever creature. I'd never known cows could be as affectionate as dogs and cats. She loved being scratched on her flank and between her front legs, and she demanded to be stroked everywhere. And if I didn't stop halfway through the milking to do this, she'd kick over her milk pail. She also knew perfectly well how to unlock the stable door, let herself out, unlock the granary door across the courtyard, and spend the night munching, much to Rocard's annoyance. But few wanted the creamy warm milk she gave, so I used it, learning to make cheese. Drinking milk just isn't a big favourite in France. "'In fact, my cow and I built up such a wonderful relationship. "'I decided I had to buy her and keep her with me forever. "'Okay, I had no pasture land, but I could rent some, "'or I could take her to the grassy verges along the road "'and let her graze there, "'as I had seen one old man do with his cow, "'and as people still did in Spain at the time. "'I told Rocard I would buy her. "'He laughed at me. "'I asked how much she would cost.' Three thousand francs, he said. Fine. I'd have to convince my husband to give me the money, or to lend it to me, but I was serious about this. Rocard watched me, amused. He was, as I said, a man with big plans, and he wasn't overly honest either. The cattle, the sheep, all the farm animals were taken care of by farm workers. However, they weren't paid to take care of Rocard's animals, and no doubt the landowner, in her distant manner, who paid their salaries, had no idea they were doing so. For all she knew, the workers only tended to planting, harvesting, hauling beetroot to the sugar factory. But Rocard continued to trade in animals, and he made quite a fortune doing so. One evening, just after, I asked Guy if he would milk the cow. I had to go to Paris for a day. Sure, he said, no problem. The morning after that, I arrived at the farm and didn't find my cow in her stall. Rocard and his workers were out in the courtyard and I could see he was watching me with great amusement. Where had he put her? I went over to Rocard, asked where she was. He laughed, highly amused. Now you can have her as steak. She went to the slaughterhouse yesterday. I stared at him. I couldn't believe it. Behind him, the workers were silent. They were all intimidated by Rockard, but I wasn't. You are so primitive, I screamed at him. And then, completely without thinking, I slapped him as hard as I could. He didn't react. He didn't hit me back, although he could have. He must have been astounded. No one ever dared treat him in such a way. The workers stared equally astounded. No one moved, no one laughed, but they were enjoying themselves. I went home and was heartbroken for a very long time after. Before he retired, Rocard had become a very wealthy man, but the last thing he wanted was to have the state take his money. Not only that, what does an ambitious but uneducated man with too much money dream of becoming? An aristocrat. Well, a title was way beyond his means, but he could purchase a chateau, a real one, 18th century, something with class. He found just the place, too, with a wonderful park, a gatehouse, all the elegance a wannabe noble could ask for. But the chateau was a little too far away, and he couldn't commute there every single day. And because it was untended, pillagers arrived and little by little, the marble fireplaces, the chandeliers, the furniture, everything started disappearing. He would restore it all, Rocard decided. He would stop the pillaging. He'd move in soon. And not only that, it was time he married. He wanted an heir and an adoring young wife. Fortunately for her, Marie-Claire had died years before, and Rocard now set his cap on a beautiful young Moroccan woman. He married her. She did give him a son, but now his luck had run out. By the time Rocard did retire and could move into the chateau, there was nothing much left of it. Heavy oak beams had been removed and the oak floors. The beautiful stained-glass windows had been destroyed, the stairway removed. There was nothing he and his young wife could do but take up residence... Where? In the regisseur's, the manager's house, back to square one. But then things became even worse. He adored his son, but his wife was giving him trouble. No worse than that. She proved to be wild, crazy, a vixen, a harridan. She was violent. She hated him. Life with her had become a misery, and he was becoming ill. Certain he was dying, he consulted doctors, but they could find nothing wrong with him. "'and that made him suspicious. "'His wife hated him. "'That was true enough. "'Was he being poisoned? "'He began searching through the kitchen "'each time his wife was out of the house, "'and he finally discovered, "'in the little grinder she used "'to chop parsley and garlic, "'a white residue. "'His fears were confirmed. "'His wife had been poisoning him. "'What could he do now? "'Where could he go?' He loved his son. He loved his ruined chateau. Yet he felt an old man weary. He stopped eating anything his wife prepared. Never touched a glass she had touched first. He said he would have her arrested. She said he could prove nothing but that he would lose his son. She would accuse him of poisoning her. They're still there today, in the manager's house of the devastated chateau. She lives on the top floor, he on the bottom. She has no access to his living quarters, he has no access to hers. It's a battleground with perfectly drawn borders. But the son, too, is a disappointment. Insolent, arrogant, helping himself to whatever he'd like, he has no respect or love for his father.